All right. Tonight and one more. Can you believe that? And then we've covered all 39 books of the Old Testament. Well, it's good to have you here. I know it's a very busy season. I hope you can be here next week as well as we wrap it up. And I know that it's always available online. Some of the most downloaded messages on our church menu is our Compass Night series that we have. And uh, this is no different. We've had a lot of people downloading it and listening to it. And that's fantastic. So if you liked it, get the word out. It's always good to drive people to our website. It's always good to remember Focal Point, by the way, as long as I'm thinking about Focal Point. If you don't know, that is an independent ministry. It's not uh, funded by our church. So if it's a blessing to you out there, even just as you stream things, please remember Focal Point, particularly as we come near the end of the year. Great time to support that ministry. All of it goes to that very practical set of needs that are in that ministry. I'm not on the payrolls. I try to remind people I don't make any money at all out of that, off of that. Matter of fact, all the donations of my books, exceptions to the ones that are at the publishers, all that's donated and all that generation of funds for the books all goes right back into that ministry. So you've heard that before, but I just want to let you know it's not my Porsche fund or my kid's college fund, although I've been tempted a couple times for the college fund. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to drive your Porsche, but I do need to pay for my kids' school, so that's, that's a practical need. All right, well, let's pray together, and then let's jump right into it. And I told you I might give you a test on those prophets. I'm not going to do it. It's all right there. So that means I'm going to test you on all the Old Testament, so we'll do that together. Do that quickly. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for our opportunity to get together every Thursday night to study your word. Thanks for this good overview that we've had, and I mean good in terms of just being able to get up out of the uh, details of the verses and chapters to look at the whole of what these books are doing, why they're there, what they're all about. I just pray it would stick with us for many years as we try to piece even together the last section of the minor prophets and major prophets as we move through those uh, tonight and next week. God, we do love your word. We want to love it more. We want to praise you for it, just as the Psalms say, to praise you seven times a day for your word. It'd be great if we just got around to doing it once a day or twice a day, but help us to be more thankful for your word that is to be and should be as we think about it, meditate on it, allow it and its principles to guide us. It should be a light to our feet, a lamp for our path. We want that, God, to be much more practical in ways that make more sense, even in the macro story, the big story, the meta-narrative, as they say, of the scripture, the uh, all the, the big movements of what you're doing in the Bible that remind us of our our need and the way that you meet our need in Christ and even the practical aspects of our sanctification that we learn about as we watch ourselves in the southern kingdom of Israel tonight. And as the prophets were sent to make those corrections, I pray that we would be able to learn and grow from their message tonight as you spoke through them to that generation and to all of us, knowing that it would be recorded that it's your God-breathed words to us and it's eternal, never going to wither or fade. It's not going to pass away. Your word is eternal. We're grateful to study it together tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. First book of the Bible. What is it? Genesis. And if you had a word to describe that, you would say it is the word beginnings. And the key chapter of that book is chapter 12. What happened in chapter 12? The Abrahamic covenant. The second timeline book that moves the story along is the book of Exodus. And the key word for that is the word deliverance. And the key chapter is 12, because in in chapter 12, what happened? First Passover. First Passover. We got out of Egypt. Chapter 20, throw that in for extra credit. What happened in chapter 20? Ten Commandments. The third book is the book of Numbers, not the third book of the Bible, but the third book that advances the history of the Old Testament. The key word for that that we taught you was wanderings. The key chapter, chapter 14. In chapter 14, what happened? There was a test of faith at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, and they failed it with 12 spies. The next book that advances the story is the book of Joshua. Key word for that is the word conquest. Key chapter is six. What happened in chapter six? 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, as the old song says. The next book is the book of Judges that advances the story, and the key word for that is failure, not a happy word. The key chapter is two, and what starts there? Cycle of sin, cycle of sin. And every time they fell into sin, went into idolatry, fell into then oppression, and then God sent a deliverer, a judge, not a guy with a robe and a gavel, but someone to lead the people out of the oppression, a military leader. What's the next book that advances the story of the Old Testament? The book of First Samuel. The key word is monarchy. What chapter? Eight. And we get who is the king? Saul, King Saul. The seventh book that advances the timeline of the Old Testament is the book of Second Samuel. And the key word is David. Key chapter? Seven. And what happened in chapter seven? Davidic covenant. Why is that so important? Who does that promise? Christ. Christ is going to come through the Davidic line. First Kings is the next book that advances the story, and the key word we taught you was division. And when did that happen? What chapter? Chapter 12, Israel splits in two. The next book that advances the story or the history of the Old Testament is Second Kings. The key word was captivity. Very good. And because we have a split kingdom, we need two chapters. Chapter what and what? 17 and 25. Very good. We got the fall of the north and the south. The north falls to what national power? And uh, south falls to what national power? Babylon. That's right where we're at tonight. That's where all of our prophets are going to be ministering. Then we have a 70-year exile taken to Babylon and three deportations. And then they come back in restoration. And the next book to advance the story of the Old Testament is Ezra. And the key word is temple. Always spiritual things before physical things. Key chapter? Chapter 6, the temple foundation is laid in chapter 6. Next book, which is the last book historically in the timeline of the Bible, is the book of Nehemiah. Key word is walls. What's the key chapter? Chapter 6. And what happened in chapter 6? Walls were rebuilt. We looked at the prophets, which is the chart I gave you there that I printed out for you. We studied two sets in the columns on the left and the right. We looked at the two prophets, the writing prophets, that is, to the north, Amos and Hosea. These are not in canonical order. These are in categorical sections and in chronological order. Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum. Obadiah went to what country? Edom. Very good. And what was the key city there? We talked about that. Petra. Remember? And then we had uh, Jonah. He went where? Nineveh. And that was the capital of what national power? Assyria. And what about Nahum? Where did he go? Same place, Nineveh. Tonight we're going to look at Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, Lord willing. And then next week we'll look at these two exilic prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, and the last three post-exilic prophets after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So let's dive into the book of Joel. General data about Joel, it's a short book. It's three chapters long. There is no hard dating information. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons there's so much debate about the book itself. Some people will say, because there's no king mentioned, this must be after there is no king. This is in the exile, way in the 4th, 5th, 6th century B.C. There's a lot of discussion about this being a late date, but I don't believe that's the case. Matter of fact, Amos's words, which were written in 760, uh, they begin where Joel's prophecy ends. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 16, the end of Joel, the book that we're looking at right now, ends with this concept, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. That's lifted right out of that section, and that is what starts Amos. Amos takes that message to the north, you remember, being a southern prophet sent to the north. We said he lived in the south, went to the north, and and we studied that last time, and that was dated for us. And if that's the case, and that seems to be what's going on in this book, then we're going to put a rough date at 830 
B.C., 830 B.C., because you'll remember Amos sets his ministry in the days of King Uzziah, that long-reigning king with all the prosperity that we talked about last time. So, 830 The times then would be that this is the earliest of all the writing prophets. And if this date is right, though you may look in some handbooks that uh, disagree, I think half of them will agree with me and half of them won't. But if it is this early date, which it seems to make sense that it would be, well, then this is the earliest of the writing prophets. And I should say, I don't think there's any mention of the king because I think Joash was the king. And when Joash is the king in 830, he's a very young man. There's enough references to the priesthood, which that's what leads the people to think this is a post-exilic book because there is no king and it was led, the nation was led by priests, but Joash was a little boy, you remember, and he was not a functioning monarch when he was young and the priests led the nation. So uh, that's one of the ways for us to understand this if the timeline is right. Joash was only seven when he ascended the, the throne. Well, if he's this, if this is the right time frame, then he is a contemporary of Elijah. And that kind of gives us some perspective as we read through the Kings, the books of First and Second Kings. He's a contemporary of Elijah writing this book and uh, in, in dealing with the issues in the southern kingdom, as was Elijah. It was during the reign of the young king Joash, I just said that, in the south. In the north, and there's reference to the ideas of, of at least the judgment that's coming and sweeping beyond the south, we would have this before the north falls to Assyria during the reign of King Jehu. And I put those two king lists there, and those obviously are not to scale. They're all listed numbers, but it gives you a sense. When I reference these kings tonight, you can look up real quickly there and see where we're at in terms of the northern kings and the southern kings. So Joash and King Jehu, if you were to look at that, Joash, you see that window, and King Jehu. Now, there's two Joashes, you understand, but you've got what I'm dealing with here, King Joash of the south and King Jehu of the north. Joel, prophet himself. Now, there's lots of Joels in the Bible. Joel is a very common name. There's 14 people in the Bible named Joel, and as you look through all of those to see if any of them match up to give us some historical background to this man, they don't. It's a super common name because if you even start looking at the names of the Bible and unraveling them, most Bibles will have footnotes on the proper names in the Bible to tell you what they mean. At least in most cases, you'll see what they mean, and study Bibles will go even further. Uh, The name Joel is a conflation of... Yahweh and Elohim basically means Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh, 6,800 times that proper name of God used in the Old Testament. Uh, In Elohim, 2,600 times, 2,597 to be exact, in the Old Testament, the general word for God. So Yahweh, that's his proper name, is Elohim, God. Uh, The Lord is God is how it would be translated in our Bibles today. Yahweh is Elohim. Very common name. And because we can't identify him with any other historically named or name of uh, Joel in a narrative in the Bible, then we're stuck not knowing anything about it. It's one of the problems in dating the book because we don't get any clues really about what's going on and he doesn't give us any reference to kings, so we're stuck in in, uh, having to piece this together in the way that I tried to explain to you that we did. What's his message? His message is the most frequent use of the the phrase, certainly per chapter, the uh, condensed and and, and concentrated use of the phrase day of the Lord. This is the theme of the book, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is used in different ways in this book. It starts with the locust plague. And you remember when I was talking about uh, the connection between this book and Amos and how Amos is... Do you remember the visions of Amos? And I put the picture of the locust up there on the screen. And I said he had the vision of judgment that they deserved up north. But 
God relented and didn't do it. And the second vision was the vision of fire. And then God didn't do it. So here are these pictures of what you deserve. And again, this matches the connection that we see between Amos and Joel. And that's another reason you might think these books go together. Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, I should make this clear. As he speaks historically about the day of the Lord from Joel's perspective, there was the locust plague in the north, which is reminiscent of what went on in the book of Exodus when they were leaving Egypt. Those plagues. But this particular plague is what Joel is writing about. The locust had come in and destroyed their crops, which happens historically in various points. Sometimes it's worse than others. And apparently it was a really bad plague. And here's Joel saying, let me tell you what this is. What's happened to you, your economics, your your harvesting, your food supply is the judgment of God. And it is the day of the Lord. That becomes something as we move through the book that now he speaks of in the future. If you don't stop sinning, you're going to encounter another day of the Lord, which is going to be far worse than bugs coming into your your fields. It's going to be these armies that are going to kick us out of our land because Moses made the promise back in Deuteronomy that if we are not faithful to him, he retains the rights to the land and we will get, get back in the land, but he's going to kick us out of the land. We'll go into the doghouse. We'll go into exile. So he's concerned about the coming day of the Lord. And then beyond that, there's another day of the Lord, the day of the Lord coming eschatologically uh, down at the end of time when we see in the book of Revelation in the New Testament that there was a day of the Lord. So he says, look at it this way, kind of a telescopic definition. There's a plague that just happened in your, in your fields. That was the day of the Lord. There's a coming day when if you don't stop sinning, you're going to meet the armies of a foreign nation, and that's going to be the day of the Lord. And it was in the south in 586 BC. And then the ultimate day of the Lord is coming, and he speaks in cataclysmic terms, in terms of the sun and, and the moon and the stars. There's an ultimate coming day of the Lord, which the book of Revelation completely unpacks. Day of the Lord is not a day. Okay, now you know I'm a very literal biblicist right? I want to read the Bible normally and literally. But this is the day, using the word day, not in reference to a 24-hour day, but the concept of God showing up, God arriving. And when you had your fields wiped out, it wasn't in a day. It was a period of time when the locusts came in and destroyed them. And there's going to be a day of the Lord that he predicts, and that's going to be the day when the Babylonians come in, in three deportations through four different kings. We're going to have a lot of things go bad here, and it's not going to happen in a 24-hour day, but it's when God shows up. And when God shows up, there's going to be a reckoning. And one day in the future, there'll be a day of the Lord at the end of time when God shows up. As James puts it from the church period, the epic that we live in now, the judge is standing at the door. And at any moment, he could, he could break in, and now he's going to deal with the people and the nations and the individuals of this earth. That's the day of the Lord. When Paul speaks about the day of the Lord in the New Testament, you need to understand that is a series of events. As a matter of fact, you could put it this way. The day of the Lord, if my eschatology is right, begins with the rapture of the church. It certainly includes everything that's taking place during the seven-year period of the tribulation. It also includes the great white throne judgment. It also includes the millennial kingdom. It also includes the inauguration of the eternal state when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. All of that is going to take place in over a thousand-year period. That's all the day of the Lord. It's the coming of God's arrival. Things seem to be going on just fine right now. You can do whatever you want. You can sin however you'd like. You know, there's consequences in sowing and reaping. But one day, the day of the Lord's going to take place. God's going to step in, and he's going to respond to your sin. 
That's the picture in this book, starting with a historic cleaning of the crops by locusts and then saying, we better get our act together or there's going to be another day of the Lord. By the way, there may be the day of the Lord going on in your life right now. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, in a sense, the day of the Lord, even as the writers of the New Testament say, God's judgment begins with the household of God. He's going to purify his church. And in your life right now, there may be discipline going on. And if it's not this week or this month, it's probably going to be next month or next year. And you're going to encounter something, the Bible says, that will be discipline for a short time. And that short time is we just think about one life instead of one nation or the timeline of all humanity. You have these days of the Lord, if you will. And I don't mean to minimize the word or, or, or make, make the phrase common. But there's a time when God steps in. As I've illustrated before from this platform, it's like when we were kids goofing around, messing around, doing things we knew we shouldn't do. And dad's there after a long day of work and he's on the couch after dinner, whatever, just trying to relax a little bit before he has to get up tomorrow and do the same thing. But at one point, he's had enough of us. And as I put it, dad gets off the couch. That's the day of the Lord for us when we were you know, seven years old, the day of the Lord. It's all of a sudden now there's a reckoning. And all I'm telling you is when it comes to God, the discipline in your life is that way. He sits there. He's a long-suffering God. He's slow to anger. He's a patient God. But at some point, God may in your life get up off the couch. If I came up to you and I said to you, there's sin in your life and you know there's sin in your life. There's compromise in your life. You know there's compromise in your life. And you know there are things that are not pleasing to God, but you're holding on to that stuff. At some point, God steps in, much like he did with the locust and the crops in Joel's day, and disciplines his people. And maybe in your life that's taking place. Our parents disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's the point. He wanted to prepare his people in Joel. He wants to prepare his church now and corporately even churches go through this cycle of of discipline. But individuals is what I want you to think about right now, that discipline that's not pleasant. All at the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The goal is holiness and righteousness. I preached on this before to some people that are, I guess, biblically illiterate, and they've met me at the door and said, God would never bring bad things into my life. I just think to myself, you've never read the Bible, obviously, right? You've read your 18 favorite verses about love, and you think the Bible is just rainbows and kitty cats and, 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 and sunsets, but it's about a God who's very concerned about your training in righteousness. And so the day of the Lord, when the crops start to be eaten away, you should be on your knees before God saying, why is this happening? We'll see this in the post-exilic prophets. You know, you're putting money in your purse and it's like it's got holes in it. Why are you having economic problems? It's because there's something that you're neglecting in your spiritual life. That's what was going on in the post-exilic prophets. We'll look at that next time. But here we have the same concept, the same idea, is that we need to realize that sometimes these things that seem very unrelated to God are God's tools to get our attention to make us holy. Now, every difficulty in your life is not discipline. We can talk about that, and we have in various sermons. But often it is, and you ought to ask as the psalmist does, search me, try me, know my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. And it'd be good for you whether you get a cold like I have right now, whether you have an economic problem, whether you get an offender bender, whether or not you get a bad diagnosis. Just ask God, God, is this a tool that you're using to get me to forsake some kind of sin? And Joel's trying to point it out. Hey, the crops, they're suffering because there's sin in your life. The locust plague, the day of the Lord. Well, there's a future day of the Lord coming. And he starts with the fact in the second movement of this book saying it's judgment for the nations. God's going to judge the nations and not just Israel. And by that, I mean Judah, because Joel is speaking to the southern kingdom, although he's referencing even the north and what's going on there, I think. And and you've got to read between the lines to see some of that. But the nations are going to be judged as well. 
And again, the judgment, as we see throughout the Bible, is not, it's not identical. Non-Christian nations, even like Jonah that we saw last time, they didn't sacrifice, they didn't sit down and, and, and start synagogues. They just saw their sin and responded to it. Well, God wouldn't have accepted that kind of response from his own people. The more knowledge of Scripture you have, the more God expects of you. The more exposure to truth you've had, the more he's going to demand from your life. So there's judgment for nations. But like God repeatedly points out, to whom much is given, much is required. Or as Jesus put it, it'll be more tolerable in Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for those cities that had Jesus teaching in their streets. Judgment for the nations. And yet, as all these books, there's blessing for the faithful. If you see your sin for what it is, and you're willing to say, I'm going to trust him, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to cling to him, like John 15 says, like a vine to the branches, and I'm going to say, I need him, and I'm going to trust him. Well, then there's hope. There's hope in God's grace. I want to show you a passage here in Joel 2 on the next slide that just beautifully expresses this picture. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. It's always this way. It's not just some external show. It's not going to church or putting money in the offering plate. What he wants is you, first of all, to have your heart repaired. Return to me with all your heart. Make this complete insight. And then we move to the expressions of that with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Sound like James? Worldliness in your life, it's like adultery. Weeping, turn your laughter into mourning. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. I'm not really so concerned about the external expressions of your grief. I'd like to see your hearts torn here. Return to the Lord your God. I think that's the Hebrew word azub. About face here, for he is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. The Hebrew word hesed, he's got a faithful love. He keeps his promise, and his promise is if you confess your sins, to put it in New Testament terms, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. And he will relent over disaster. Just like in that passage I quoted in Hebrews 12, he's happy to relent from his discipline in your life if you're willing to come to him honestly and rend your hearts, tear your hearts and not your garments and come before God and see your sin for what it is. It's a great book, the book of Joel. You probably know it from the sermon in Acts 2 when Peter is preaching and he speaks about the spirit being poured out. Well, that's back in that section when he's talking about the the faithfulness, God's goodness to the faithful. And there's a day coming in that great day of the Lord, which is going to include all those cataclysmic events that Peter actually quotes in the passage. But he's just trying to get to that place where we have this first installment, if you will, of the spirit that transforms hearts, which was taking place there on the day of Pentecost. One day, the totality of that passage will be fulfilled when he brings these cataclysmic events, these cosmic events, and as the Bible says, burns our entire physical world down and starts over. Joel. That was the fast, fast run through Joel. And now I'm going to take a bigger book, Isaiah, and see if we can do this equally as fast. Impossible. Isaiah, general data. Well, this is much bigger. How, how much bigger is it? It's, well, it's 66 chapters, 63 chapters bigger. That's why they call it a major prophet. It is a major literary work. I've told you before, it has nothing to do with the importance or significance of the message. You understand that. It's not that Joel had a minor message and Isaiah has a major message. It's that Isaiah is a major literary work. That's all that it means. That's the only difference between major prophets and minor prophets. And that's a category of writing prophets because there were plenty of prophets that were speakers and preachers but not writers. Just like today, we got preachers. We're not prophets, obviously. Should be obvious to you. But there are some preachers that write and preach and there are preachers that just preach. Now, this is a long book and we have to give it a date as we did on your list or I'm about to here, I guess 740. But I should say 740, though that's the number in the block here that comes next. It's just when his ministry began. You've got to add 50 years or so to that to give you the span of time that he is preaching and bringing these messages. Now, there's a lot of debate 
among scholars regarding whether or not Isaiah wrote this whole book, is he responsible for it? And I'm going to tell you, every time you see these kind of debates, you need to look behind the curtain and say, why are you saying this? Most of the time you find people questioning what is the traditional or seemingly plain reading of a text that seems to be attributed to someone like Isaiah in this case. It's usually because there's an anti-supernatural bias. That's usually the case. And so it is with this. Though they'll say, well, it seems very disjointed. And I understand that. We have sections that are very, very different. As Isaiah goes through the sections of what he's dealing with in terms of nations, and it seems to reach a climax in terms of judgment, but then I guess you could draw a line and say, now we've dealt with the exile, and now we're talking about some supernatural restoration, and all that's true. I could outline this, which we're not taking time to outline every book, and say, you can make sense of this as a literary whole. But the problem is, in Isaiah in particular, is that they're seeing things in there, like the description of Cyrus, which they say, how could Isaiah ever know Cyrus's name because it hadn't happened yet in his day? How can he talk about that in terms of of the one who would be the the edict giver to bring back the people to the land in the restoration? Well, again, you have to remember about three times that I can remember right now in my mind, you've got Isaiah making the point that he is speaking the words of God because God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He's the only one that can tell things before they happen. So it's no surprise that in Isaiah 46, we've got this picture of the Persian king named by name. Cyrus is his name is here, the Persian, who brings the people back, or at least allows them, authorizes them to come back. This is not unusual after Isaiah has been going to great lengths to say, God is the God who can tell the future. He does write that from the perspective of once you're back and established in the land, I'm summarizing now, here are the things that we look to in the next installment in God's development of the restoration of his people. I think the single author was helped greatly, I should say this, because by the time we got to the 18th, 19th century in Western scholarship on the Bible, particularly in all the seminaries in in Germany, people would look at books like this and be so convinced, not only did Isaiah not tell the future or Daniel not tell the future, and they started to create these long literary histories out of fiction and imagination as to how they came together, that they would put these things like Isaiah in terms of how did it get to its final form way late, even post-Christian dates, in terms of where this came to be the way it looks today. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you understand the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 1940s, when we uncovered that library that was stashed in those Qumran caves as Rome was coming through the desert and, and ended up driving the the Jewish people up to the top of Masada where they committed suicide instead of surrendering to the Romans, that library that was stuck there by that religious group at Qumran had these scrolls of Isaiah that go all the way back from before the time of Christ, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st century BC. And you have in those scrolls, in those caves rather, scrolls of Isaiah, which by the time we're debating this in the 18th century, we had no, the earliest extant copy of Isaiah that we had was to the 9th or 10th century AD. Now, we trusted the fact that the scribes were professional scribes doing very careful work in copying these manuscripts. But when you said, well, the earliest manuscript we can look at that has all these 66 chapters of Isaiah is 9th or 10th century AD, I can tell you we got lots of time to figure out how this kind of morphed its way into the final form. But when you pulled documents out, matter of fact, it was the first one. When John Trevor was there doing his dissertation on the flora and fauna of Palestine, and these kids came, these Bedouins found these scrolls, and the first one that they took to St. Mark's Monastery was the Isaiah scroll. The scroll. They call it the Great Isaiah Scroll. If you ever go to the, the Museum of the Book, the Shrine of the Book in Israel, the one, it's a facsimile, but the one 
one representation of that big scroll that goes around that main room that you walk into is the great Isaiah scroll. It rolls out like this super long scroll. That was the first one pulled out of that cave, taken, and he was there, John Trevor, with those great, with all that great camera equipment. He started taking pictures of this, and they realized soon as he got with the American scholars that were in Jerusalem to say, this is predating anything we've ever seen in terms of early manuscripts of the Old Testament. And the first thing that they took pictures of, that John Trevor set his tripod up to take pictures of, was a complete, unified 66 chapters all together in one book, predating the time of Christ of the book of Isaiah, the great Isaiah scroll. That's not going to convince someone in a seminary classroom in, a, in an ivory tower because they'll just move the, the, the timeline back. But I can tell you, when you don't have those kinds of things punctuating the history of the manuscript that shows us that exactly what we've got going on with the Masoretic text of the 10th century and what we've got in our Hebrew text as we sit in seminaries today learning Hebrew in the 21st century and what we had in the scrolls and the caves of Qumran in the 1st century, that they're all the exact same thing, all complete and a unified scroll, then you can make up a lot of different stories. But those are the kinds of things I think God does to prove, which take much more than the history of a manuscript, to prove it to the skeptic. Nevertheless, I think we can trust that God has the ability to tell the future. He certainly has the ability to show us that he's preserved his word and that uh, all of this, I think we're going to get to heaven and find it was exactly what we were claiming it has been. And the simple statements of fact about these books that were being made by our forefathers was exactly the case. And we don't have to crawl up into an ivory tower and doubt the reality of the book of Isaiah. I understand there's big distinctions between chapter 39 and chapter 40. I understand the differences in all of that theological emphasis that shift, but it's a book. I've done a lot of writing. You've done some writing. You understand you can write something that has very different perspectives in different parts of the book. That's what's going on in Isaiah. All right. Talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Times. He starts this in 740. You might remember the commissioning service in Isaiah 6. It starts with the words, in the year that King Uzziah died. I told you about King Uzziah because we've already dealt with that last week. King Uzziah was living a very stable leadership. He was leading in a very stable environment. It was a time of prosperity primarily. And this begins his ministry on the you know the chronology of his ministry. Coming off a time of great prosperity. It's a 52-year reign. And by the time he gets going in this ministry, Assyria, you remember, is the great power. Uh, He's a contemporary of Hosea in the north and Micah in the south. Micah we're going to look at next, but Hosea we looked at last time. And you can see that on your prophet chart there. Now, again, those aren't exactly lined up, and I told you that because I just built that on a table in Microsoft Word, and not, it's not a timeline or a chart, but you get the idea here. You've got Hosea and Isaiah and Micah all in the same time frame. Hosea is prophesying to the north because Assyria is ramping up to take them out. Isaiah is prophesying in the south, making plenty of references to the north and speaking often of what's going on in the north. Well, his 50-year ministry is going to going to lay over the fall of the north in 721 BC. So he's watched this. Now he's primarily preaching to the south and the other nations he prophesies, but his audience is the southern Jews. And he's concerned by the end of his ministry and even at the beginning of his ministry about some kind of penalty coming on the southern kingdom. And it ends up being Babylon, as you know. Well, the northern kingdom, he watches this happen and all transpire in his ministry. So this is a dramatic time to be doing ministry and to be preaching the message that God wants to bring to the people of the south. And he watches this play out in real time with their brothers to the north. Tumultuous times. And in a 50-year ministry, you're going to see a lot. I worked at my first church I worked at full-time in Tucson, Arizona. I had a pastor that was there 61 years. And I remember thinking about that 
tenure in that pulpit and the kinds of things that had transpired and they had seen, not only in the church, but in the community, in the city, and in the country. Nevertheless, the prophet, let's talk about the prophet. He's the most quoted New Testament prophet. I often talk about Jesus quoting Deuteronomy more than any other book. But in terms of the New Testament authors employing prophecies from the Old Testament and quoting them, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet. We even have hints that he wrote other non-canonical books. And by non-canonical, I mean books that are not God-breathed, books that are not, as, as you would put in the old phraseology, not inspired by God. Second Chronicles chapter 26, 22 gives you phrases like this. And sometimes you read these things and you go, oh, that's our guy, Isaiah. And it says, now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, right? He gets commissioned at the end of his reign to be a prophet and to speak for God. But it says he was apparently the chronicler or somehow putting together the memoirs, the information, the acts, the highs and lows of King Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, that's how he's known by Second Chronicles 26, son of Amos wrote, It's just one of the pictures, and we have another reference, and that may be referring to the vision of Isaiah that we're studying right now or thinking through right now, but at least one other book that we have. So he's he's a writer. He's been writing. The other passage you might want to look at sometimes is sometime is Second Chronicles thirty two thirty two, which speaks of Hezekiah's reign, and it speaks of Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, being the author of his works. But it speaks of that in the vision. Of course we have information about King Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah, which may be a reference to that. All right, what else do we know about the prophets? Well, the rabbis teach us that Isaiah was sawed in two by the evil, wicked king Manasseh. When I say Manasseh, by the way, and I'm always thinking in chronological periods, and if I'm talking about Isaiah, of course, I'm thinking about the Manasseh that was the evil, wicked king. And you can see him on your king chart there. Do you see Manasseh 697 to 643 BC, king of the south, comes after Hezekiah? Manasseh is not the Manasseh, if you think back to the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, that the tribes are named after. There's a tribe Manasseh, remember? This is not the same guy. A lot of these names, just like in our church, if you were to look on the roster of our church, a lot of people share the same name and Manasseh. Just want to make it clear, we're not talking about the tribal head. We're talking about the king of the 7th century B.C., Manasseh. Saw it in two. Now, if that phrase sounds familiar, you probably remember it from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. And the only reason I would mention an extra biblical reference to Isaiah's life is because there is a reference in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, that all the rabbis... We're teaching about Isaiah. And if the Bible is going to affirm it, then this, is, this must be true. It doesn't mention him here, but it does say, speaking of these people, that time would fail him if he had to mention them all. Some of them were stoned. Some of them were sawn in two. And some were killed by the sword. Well, that little phrase there, if someone who was familiar with the rabbinic writings saw that, they go, oh, I know the man of faith that was sawn in two in the Old Testament. That's Isaiah. The Bible doesn't give us that story, but perhaps that's a reference to Isaiah, which is interesting. That's the traditional extra-biblical information about the end of Isaiah's life. Ended up dying as a martyr, an old martyr. The message of the book, well, sin, and not just sin, but compromise, and sometimes the compromise is subtle. It's going to be judged by God. Unrepentant sin, unrepentant compromise is going to be judged. The subtle compromises in the geopolitics of the Old Testament often had to do with how the kings were going to respond to threats. Just like the Bible says in many places, things happen in our lives to test us. And it's clear in the Christian life, you're going to be tested. There are going to be situations that are going to test you. If something goes crazy in your life and scary, you may say, oh man, Pastor Mike was talking about discipline. Could be discipline. Then you look at your life, go, I don't see any unconfessed sin. Okay, then it's not discipline. You know what it could be is a test. 
These people had war brewing on some of their borders, these, these kings, these leaders, oftentimes to test whether or not they were going to trust God or whether they were going to run to the pagan foreign kings and build an alliance. And those alliances were often sealed by marriages. I mean, this is how it happened with Solomon that brought his reign down was those alliances that he made with foreign countries. These are the tests. And they weren't like you were just bowing down to, to Moloch or sacrificing your kid in the fire. But these were the kinds of compromises that Isaiah was making clear throughout his book. They will be judged. You need to see them for what they are. You need to repent from them. Now, like a lot of the books, not a lot, there's a couple of key prophets that spend time doing this, and Isaiah is one of them. There's a lot of discussion about the foreign nations. I showed you this last time to the prophets of the north. Sometimes just to see God's justice with other nations, it's easy for you, as Romans 2 says, to see sin in other people more clearly than you see it in your own children or your own life. And sometimes that's a strategy, I think, biblically, to get people to go, yeah, those Assyrians are really bad. Yeah, those Philistines are really bad. Yeah, those Babylonians later and get really bad. Well, God's going to judge all those nations. They'll be justly repaid. And Isaiah spends some time saying all that. Just to make it clear, God's not just picking on his own people. The alliances, big theme here, kind of an undercurrent. They're going to bring disaster, not just to you and your relationship with God, if you are a person in leadership, but to the people that surround you. And this is a good point for parents or leaders or managers or bosses or business owners. If you don't live your life and and conduct yourself, naming the name of Christ, saying that you're a Christian, living with confidence in him that you don't run and scurry like the rest of the world to do whatever they say you've got to do to make it in life, but you're going to live your life honestly with integrity and not cut corners and not cheat and not skim off the top or whatever it might be. If if you don't live that way, the Bible says not only will it affect your sanctification, it's going to affect the people around you. And of course, people in positions of power, the cascading effects of their fidelity or infidelity are important. And when the kings were faithless and they went after these alliances, it was going to bring disaster. And Isaiah had no problem pointing that out because it was important for kings to recognize that. Isaiah also made it very clear, if you're willing to trust in God, you'll be delivered, even if the odds are against you. God will take care of you. This is a principle, a retribution principle, that though it's not 100% always true in every case, much like the Proverbs, it is the general rule. And as Isaiah steps up, he not only quotes the proverbial truth, but in many cases, he makes the statement, listen, if you, 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 you as a king, you trust in God, then God's going to give you relief. He's going to give you deliverance. He'll give you protection. All that discussion about the imperfect kings of the Bible, even though we name kings of the south sometimes as good kings, we have got a good king here and a good king there. Isaiah, with all this ministry over all these decades, brings up in these prophecies in such a rich way that there's an ultimate king coming and he's going to lead and that king will be perfect. That's the message of Isaiah that I think is, I think most provocative for us as students of the New Testament. We see those biblical connections between Jesus Christ and, and Isaiah. Here's a few, just to point some out. The deity of the Messiah, clearly revealed. Now, it's a lot of places we could look at it. Micah, which we'll look at in a minute. I don't know we'll have time for the Christological stuff, but chapter 5, one who's going forth or from old, from everlasting. Interesting, but when you get a passage like this in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of literal, physical, historical children in the narrative, but then, like we often see, telescoping that into a future ultimate fulfillment, like the day of the Lord. Yeah, there's the day of the Lord in the fields that we had last year. There's a day of the Lord coming here. But then there's the day of the Lord coming out there. 
So it was with some of these promises of the children, in this case, that was born, that are going to be a a hope for the nation. Well, it wasn't the child that was born there in Isaiah's day. Statements like this, even in the statement of being born of a virgin, yeah, there might have been an immediate context for that, but there was a telescoping reality that then Matthew will write, we're talking about the Messiah here. And in this case, of course, this is a powerful statement of deity. If it is not the God-man Jesus Christ, then what we have is just some kind of bizarre blasphemy or some incoherent verse. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Okay, there's going to be an ultimate leader. And some of the rabbis thought, well, maybe David will be uh, resurrected and reincarnated in some way. No, this is going to be far better than David. David, who's willing to cover his sin by murdering some innocent man on the battlefield. No, this is going to be someone whose name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor. These great little uh, parallel phrases. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Okay, so we've got a king coming. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And he's going to be called Mighty God. You're going to have now this image of father, leader. That's what kings are. They're the dad of the land. And he's going to be the everlasting father, like Micah says. No beginning. Jesus comes on the scene and says, before Abraham was, I am, the ever-existing one, which, by the way, in Greek, is the essence, etymologically, of the Old Testament word Yahweh, which means the I am, the the ever-existing one, prince of peace. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Certainly it's not a historical player in the prophecy of Isaiah. These are the kinds of statements you can't help but read. And we do read them at Christmas time, do we not? Reminds us of something of this coming future king that's not going to be like the vacillating kings of Hezekiah folding in front of Sennacherib, the Assyrian threat. We've got someone coming here that's completely different. And when the cultist comes to your door and tells you Jesus isn't God, they have to create a different category for him. He's got to be something else because he's certainly not man. He's not man the way that we are, at least. Something very different about him. And if you're ever going to apply these kinds of passages to him, which they don't apply to anyone else, then we're stuck with the biblical definition of Christ being the God-man. How about his sufferings? Oh, I can quote passage after passage after passage of the Messiah being a great king and of the increase of his government, there'll be no end and all the people will bring their dominion and power and majesty to him. I get all of those passages, but we have to somehow cope with a Jesus who gets rejected and killed. We're about to start in January, the new section of, of Luke where Jesus comes in and presents himself as king on a donkey of all things and he ends up getting crucified a week later. That is your king, your Messiah? Well, that's what we get, and we often quote it, Isaiah 53, when we read carefully the prophecy of the suffering servant. This picture of the restored people having a hope, a hope that not only they come back to the land after the Babylonian captivity, but they look forward to a time when the ultimate king comes, and this eternal kingdom is established. And who's the leader? Someone who's been pierced for our transgressions. What? crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And and by his wounds or with his wounds, the ESV says, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here you have this picture of death. That was not a picture that fit in in the minds of the Old Testament people. Even John the Baptist was willing to say, tell Jesus that I'm having trouble here as I sit in a prison pining away in modern day Jordan. Are you the Christ or should we look for another? Because I thought you were supposed to usher in a kingdom and the, the underdogs were going to win. I'm in jail and eventually would be beheaded by Herod. And, and here he is saying, I don't get it. And here the scripture has been promising 
all the way back to Isaiah's day. Yeah, this is installment number one. Why? Because much like the temple had to be established with sacrifice and bloodletting on that mound before we got the walls of the old Jerusalem, the restored Jerusalem, before Ezra needs to come before Nehemiah, and so it is that the suffering servant needs to come before the reigning servant. And so the pictures of this coming king comes into sharp focus here. And then even in that same passage, when Jesus speaks in the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, about his own resurrection and saying he showed them on the road to Emmaus all this stuff in scripture, well, where's the resurrection? Well, right here. Here's one passage in Isaiah looking at this king who's going to suffer like some kind of sacrifice. Well, once he makes his soul a guilt, guilt offering, which meant death for the animal, if he's going to be a guilt offering, I guess he's going to die. Yeah, he's going to see his offspring. He's going to have some kind of awareness of people that are his quote-unquote offspring, like Paul looking into the eyes of Timothy, his true son in the faith. You're going to see your offspring. How are you? If you're going to be a martyr, how are you going to see that? How are your days going to be prolonged? If you've borne the iniquities like some kind of sacrifice, well, if you do that, the suffering servant is, it's said of the suffering servant, the father says, I'm going to divide him a portion with the many. It's going to be like coming back from war. He's going to divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul, just so we were clear about this analogy, unto death. Here's a picture that you cannot read in any coherent way unless you look at this in light of someone dying and rising from the dead. These are pictures in Isaiah that are powerful. Micah, general data, seven chapters. So it's not a major literary work. Of course, it's Bible, but it's not a major prophet, a minor prophet. I give this the date on our worksheet of 735. Well, just like Isaiah, we've got to use that date as the starting point for his preaching ministry. So let's give it a, a window here, 735 to 710. His prophecies regard not only Judah, but Samaria, the capital of the north. He includes that. Of course, his primary focus is on Judah, the south. But you see prophecies in both directions. Seven chapters, starting in 735, both to the north and the south. Well, let's think through the time frame. As I said, he overlaps with Isaiah. So all the things that I've said about Isaiah, not all of them because his ministry is much, much longer, but in Micah's day, look at those dates again. I mean, that date should jump off the page. 721 is the fall of the south. And so his ministry is right there in the middle of all that. You take that front row seat of watching the north go down, he gets to see all of that, and that certainly adds a lot of fuel to his prophecies and preaching. The time frame is stated. I don't know if I need to go into all this, but the word of the Lord came to uh, Micah of Moresh, the south of Jerusalem, if I recall, 10 miles or so, I think. In the days of Jotham, there's a king, Ahaz and Hezekiah. So you pull out your chart, you turn it over, and you go, okay, now I got the time frame right there. If I know that he's from Jotham's reign... And I know he's from Ahaz's reign and from Hezekiah's reign. I get a picture of where he's serving. Right there during the fall of the southern kingdom and his ministry. I can parallel that and guide that up with Isaiah. Talk about the prophet. Seven men in the Bible named Micah or Micaiah in the Bible. He's from the city that we just saw in chapter 1. Morsheth, not Moresh, but Morsheth which is south of Jerusalem. So he's not far from the capital. Oh, listen to what I said, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. Yeah. Is that not, don't get me started on that, but unbelievable. That's causing whatever. Don't get me started. Temper of Isaiah already said that. When you read carefully through the Bible every year in our daily Bible reading, sometimes you run into statements like this and hopefully you go, oh yeah, I get it. Although there are people, seven people called Micah or, or Micaiah, if you just understand clearly the beginning of the book of Micah, you get this statement, Micah, 
listen to this, Jeremiah 26, 18, of Morsheth, oh, that's the city he's from, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said, bam, right in the middle of Jeremiah, we have this reference looking back to Micah's ministry, and he names him from the city that he's from, which is exactly the same person we're talking about there. So you run into Micah, don't do what we said not to do with Manasseh, for instance, and say, oh, Manasseh, it must be one Manasseh in the Bible. No, a lot of these names are shared with different people. You got to sort that out. A good Bible dictionary should do that for you. You look up any name, it should have numbered paragraphs with the different people that are sorted out, which takes some sorting. Well, in this one, we get the identifiers. It's very easy in this case to say that's the Micah that wrote the book Micah. The message of Micah, well, it's much the same as Isaiah. In many cases, it's almost paralleling the themes. Well, they're preaching to the same audience primarily in the same time frame, watching the North fall. Yeah, they're saying, listen, if you don't want that to happen to you, you've got to stop sinning the way that the North sinned. The sin of the North cannot become the sin of the South, which of course it was, and they were trying to point that out. Micah, I love the way he states his purpose here. Look at Micah chapter three, verse eight. He tells us what he's there for. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord. This is one of the marks of inspiration. Is it a God-breathed book? He's claiming divine authority right here. And with justice and might, he's a powerful prophetic speaker to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And certainly, as I said, he's going to speak to not only Judah, but to Samaria as well to the north. My job is to tell you what your problem is, which reminds me of some very important biblical passages. That reminds me of a good phrase we like to use around here at Compass Bible Church, and that is to take the modern phrase that represents bad theology, which is love wins. They think if, you know, if we love each other, then just let that prevail. We don't worry about calling sin out. But the reality is that love warns. James chapter 5, verse 19, if anyone of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that's not happening today with people that just want to think about their Christianity as if someone is going to feel bad by these words, I don't say it. Oh, you've got to bring him back. Well, let the person know. It's worth it. Whoever brings that sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Micah was a hard-hitting preacher, and he says, my job here is to point out what your sin is. Like Nathan sitting down with David, that's not a fun job. It's a hard job. You may not be a preacher, but James chapter 5 is not written to prophets and preachers. It's written to everybody in the church. You see someone wandering from the truth, wandering from their marriage, wandering from ethics at work, wandering even from church attendance. When the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, if you can bring them back to the truth, get them back online, you're going to save their soul from death, which is a multi-tiered word that can mean a lot of things about reaping corruption of sin. And you're going to cover, you're going to blot out and, and you're going to X out. A multitude of sins, not only are they going to be forgiven in the past, but you're going to steer them off of a path of knocking over more cones, so to speak, in the future of their life if they don't change the direction of their life. As Proverbs 27 says, in a world full of flattery, and I see it every day and I'm sick of it. Everyone just going around trying to say things to make everybody else feel empowered. It's called flattery in the Bible. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You can trust them. They're trustworthy, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You got a lot of people that kiss up to you all the time. They're not your friends. I'm all for a word of encouragement. I'd love to be a Barnabas in your life, but if I tell you the truth about what God says, see, then I'm really one who loves you far more than the people that are giving hearty approval to your life because they want to say, hey, if I love you, God loves you, I'm going to affirm whatever path you're on. Now you know that, I hope. We preach that enough around here, but they'll call you Bible thumpers. They'll call you names just for being a part of our church sometimes. Love warns. Love tells the truth. And you know what? It is love. God says, what I need from you is a heart change not looking for more money in the plate. It's not about bringing thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. 
What about it? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? It's not going to do any good. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, he's told you what he wants. Here's the minimum bar, as my prof used to say, my Old Testament prophet's professor. That's hard to say. This is the low bar. Let's just start here, he used to say. This is the bottom tier. He's told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Let's just start by recognizing he wants a simple light. I mean, this is what you would expect any good, upright citizen in Israel to do. And then it wasn't happening. We'll talk about what's required of you in terms of all the rest of it later. But let's start at the bottom. Yeah, you were going to stand out as a righteous person at this particular period in Israel's history just by being what we would call an upstanding citizen. I know that's been kind of a hallmark of people. They love this verse because it is a low bar. We don't have to get into if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off in a passage like this. But this was a reminder of them being at the low point in Israel. Let's get back on the beam. Let's realize we'll get to the Levitical requirements later. Let's just start by getting your heart transformed. Micah, by the way, like Mikael, my name, Michael, it means who is like God. A little play on words here in Micah seven eighteen when he speaks of God's tremendous grace. Who is like you, right? That's what Micah means. Who is like God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant. There's a key word in the prophets. We'll get to that in another prophet in a minute. Of his inheritance. Here are his people. His people have sinned. Some of them are so hard-hearted, so stiff-necked, they're beyond any repentance, but there are some, a remnant, a peace, that are gonna be pardoned because they've repented. God is so good, he doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He wants to love you. He wants to bless you. He wants to bring you near. He will again have compassion on us. Look at this great statement. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You thought that came just from Psalm 103? Separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You made a covenant, you're gonna keep it as you've sworn to our fathers from days of old. Great grace and hope in these books. I know there's a lot of hard-hitting preaching, but that's what they needed and that's what we need with reminders that God is gracious if we're willing to repent. Zephaniah, general data in Zephaniah. It's a short little book, three chapters. Zephaniah's ministry can be marked at 635 BC. 635 BC, we'll talk about the times in a minute, but that'll give you a sense of where we're at on our timeline here. If you look on the former page, 635 BC. North is gone. Who's on the throne here? 35 BC, Josiah. That's right. You should know that because I'm about to say it. In the days of of King Josiah, of course, we're talking about the king of the south. There is no king of the north at this point. He starts out by saying it. The word Lord came to Zephaniah in the days of Josiah, son of Amnon, king of Judah. Now, Josiah, what do you know about Josiah? He was one of those guys with a star next to his name, I hope, that you remember because he was a good king. He was a reformed king. He was a king that became king when he was just 10 years old. Matter of fact, he's a pivotal king. If you look at the kings here on the south, Josiah is the last of the good kings. Matter of fact, everything falls apart after his reign. King Josiah. Zephaniah is here trying to prophesy in a time where you've got reforms taking place. Of course, reforms didn't start when he was 10. But by the time he was 20 years old, we started to see a change in the nation. Things started to turn around. Josiah was a good king. After Manasseh, by the way, his terrible reign. Look back on the king chart here. Manasseh, 697 to 643. You could put an X next to his name because once we had Manasseh in the south, God was at that point, as I'll point out here, it'll be on the screen in a minute, we were done with any kind of hope of not going into captivity. By Manasseh, it had reached an all-time low. I think I'm gonna put a verse here for you. 2 Kings 21, Manasseh had led them astray, speaking of the nation of Judah, to do more evil. Now, you know your Bible, I hope. Think back to the whole thing when we dealt with the genocide, quote unquote, of the people of Canaan when Joshua and his men came in. 
How could God do that? I try to tell you how horrific they were. We looked at passages that showed that they were sacrificing their kids and the morality had reached such an evil, horrible place that God just said, I'm scrapping this whole place. We're starting over. We're rinsing it clean. We're sanitizing it. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Manasseh had brought them to an all-time low. Zephaniah is prophesying two kings later. Amnon had passed quickly in two years. And then we had Josiah, a young king. And you remember the reforms of Josiah. Things start to turn around. The word of God becomes central again in the kingdom. Nineveh's destruction is still future. Hadn't taken place. And 612 is when Nineveh is destroyed and Nineveh falls. We learned about that when we were dealing with Jonah and Nahum. Zephaniah chapter 2, just to point that out, it's probably not needed to prove it to you, but Zephaniah 2.13 looks to the future, the destruction of Nineveh. He'll stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. That hadn't happened yet. As I said, Israel's judgment was certain. They're going to go into captivity. All that really matters right now in Zephaniah's prophecy is how quickly will that come? When is that going to take place? And though we can't save the whole nation, if you repent from my preaching, God can deliver you as an individual. Because remember, there's mass killings that are going to take place during this time. And he says, you and your family, you guys can be saved, small s, from the penalties of some of this if you just repent of your sins. So national calamity was on the way. That was set. The time was, the the clock was ticking. But here comes Zephaniah to try to give them uh, hope individually. What about the prophet? This is very interesting in Zephaniah chapter 1. We get a detailed genealogy more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon. Now, I told you, Josiah, the young king, had started his reforms. So let's just take that phrase out of it. The name that should jump off the page at you is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the good king before Manasseh, the horrible king, the worst king of all. Hezekiah... Now, you're claiming you are the descendant, the great-great-grandfather of you. Zephaniah is the king, so now we know he's from Judah. We know he's of the royal line. And we know that when he comes to Josiah, the young king, he's talking to his cousin. He's prophesying about the future of the nation to an extended family member here. So he's preaching to his cousin, King Josiah, in large part, delivering this message to them and, and to him and his court and to the nation as a whole. But that's an interesting twist as you study Zephaniah. And remember, if you're going to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of what? Levi. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. When it comes to a king, at least the king that David's line was going to be blessed through, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. But if you're going to be a prophet, you can be from any tribe. And we've seen him from all different tribes. And I'm just pointing out the first one of interest to you that overlaps. We have a Judean prophet who's of a royal lineage, who's now a prophet called to go and point out the sins of the nation and call them to repentance. Can't save the nation, but we can save individual families. The message, of course, is the day of the Lord is coming. And when I say it in quotes like that, I mean the first wave of it that we even started with. And when we started our discussion of Joel, the one that's not the locust, but the one that's the army of Babylon, that one's coming. But then there's a universal one coming. And he speaks about this universal day of the Lord that's coming. Now, the judgment, the day of the Lord for you as as a country and Nebuchadnezzar would be the king, all that's certain it's coming. But you need to know that the message is God will restore a remnant. You and your descendants can be part of that remnant. You can have your kids or your grandkids come back to the land and reassemble in the land under Ezra and Nehemiah one day. Of course, they're not named in that prophecy, but God can do that for you and your family. 
course, like a lot of these books, certainly like Isaiah in particular, there's a lot of discussion about the justice that God is going to bring on the other nations as well as your nation. And then the book gives this very incredible prophecy about one day God is going to start all over and we're going to stop talking about this nation, that nation. He's going to bring nations together and we're going to have this thing in this glorified image of a coming kingdom and it's going to be perfect. Look at this statement from Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, second half of verse 8. See if you don't see New Testament parallels to this. In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Okay, I got fire consuming the earth, like 2 Peter 3 says. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples. What divides people? Speech, ethnic boundaries, as it says, all the way back to Babylon, connected by speech. Even the prophecies say people of strange speech are going to come upon you. That's a distinction in the nations. Well, we're going to change all that, he says that all of them, all of them, no matter what their speech was, may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, there's the foreigners, the daughters of my dispersed ones coming back, they shall bring my offering. Here's a picture of destruction, wiping the slate clean, starting over all the nations, as the New Testament would put it, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, coming together now in a place where they're all serving me with a pure speech. Interesting to know what that is. Of course, every Hebrew professor I've ever had says it's Hebrew. Maybe it'll be Spanish. I don't think so. Pure speech. Cause for rejoicing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. You deserve to be punished, but you repented. You were a remnant that was saved. God's going to take all those remnants together and build a new thing and make them not look like a patchwork. They're going to be this great people. I've cleared away all your enemies. Listen to these emphatic statements. The king of Israel, Lord, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Now, that idea of God coming near, that's not the picture of God. God sits in heaven. The heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. But now we've got God now living among us. Where is that in the Bible? After the destruction of the world by fire. Second Peter 3 says he's going to destroy the world by fire. It's unpacked in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And then a new Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven and God himself is going to dwell among us. Who's that going to be? That Prince of Peace, on whom, on whose shoulders the government rests. He's everlasting God, mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's going to sit on the throne. And then that word's going to come out from heaven. The dwelling place of God is among men as the incarnate man, Jesus Christ, rules from Jerusalem. And it will be true that the King of Israel, the Lord, now we have the God-man, is going to be in the midst of the people. And it, never again fear evil. There's a picture that harmonizes perfectly with the New Testament. You know these passages, but put it together. Read them back to back. We've just read that great promise from Zephaniah. 2 Peter 3, 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What did he say earlier? With intense heat, with fire. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming. Oh, here it is again. The day of God. There's a New Testament version of that. Sometimes it's translated day of the Lord when the words are a little different in the New Testament. God's going to arrive. The judge is going to open the door because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, just like Zephaniah said, they were quoting second, the second Peter of the Old Testament, Zephaniah 3. Hey, we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why is righteousness going to dwell here? God himself, the king, is going to draw near and live among us. Great passage. So where should you live? Well, you got lots of things to do places to go, mortgage to pay, 
But if you've been raised up with Christ, you better put your mind there. You better set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because one day he's going to be dispatched and come and live among us. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And many of you have your minds too set on things of this earth, just like I do some days. And I got to say, it doesn't really matter. People think I'm really strange, and I hope they think you're really strange. Because there's a lot of things, I hope, that don't really matter at all to you. The way they matter to your non-Christian counterpart. It doesn't really matter. Why? Because I've died. It comes to this world, this life, doesn't really matter. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. I don't have, the perf- don't have to have the perfect this, don't have to have the right that, don't have the perfect justice here. God, all that matters is my life that's coming. My life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. So he's dispatched from that place, enthroned with God, seated at the right hand. He's going to come back when he appears. So then you too will appear with him in glory. That picture of Zephaniah 3 will be a reality. What a great picture. Tie these testaments together. Jeremiah, general data, 52 chapters, major literary work. It's not more important than Zephaniah. It's just that it's longer than Zephaniah. Taking these in chronological order here. He ministers for 40 years. The beginning of that ministry is in 626, as it says on your chart, Jeremiah 626 BC. He preaches to the kings and leaders primarily of Judah. I say of Israel, I mean of Judah. That word is used interchangeably. I should have been careful about that though. Interestingly, though, we find in Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 4, he has, I call him a scribe, but what we call him is an amanuensis. Is that a new word for you? Jeremiah's amanuensis. His name is Baruch. An amanuensis, that's a Latin conflation of two words. Manu is uh, like manual. It means by the hand. Uensis comes from the Latin word service, which is the word for servant. A servant who writes by the hand. An amanuensis is someone who is employed to, conscripted to, invited to write dictation on your behalf. Paul has an amanuensis in the New Testament in some of his books, in part because he has some kind of ailment that probably messed his vision up and he couldn't see. But Baruch was Jeremiah's amanuensis. Jeremiah 36.4, if you want to look that up. Some people think that Baruch was actually the one who put the whole book together, and that may be the case. Nevertheless, it's Jeremiah's preaching and revelation over many years course, you remember he also authored Lamentations. Don't forget that. We dealt with that in the poetic books because it's a poetic work, an acrostic poem. Remember we taught that, taught you that, an acrostic poem in Hebrew. The times, well, they're bad times. He's ministering through the last five kings of Judah. You've got Josiah, and when he dies, the hope of Israel dies at that point. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, with Jehoiahaz and Jehoiachin barely serving any time at all. There's lots of intrigue. There's lots of, of betrayal. There's coups. It's, it's a terrible time. Captivity is certain. I told you that since Manasseh's reign. When Manasseh sinned past the point where dad got off the couch, so to speak, it, it was over. To give you a little sense of this, now I know you have this on the chart, but just to remind you how this works and under whose reign what happened. Jeremiah starts his ministry here, and he's going to move his ministry through all of these kings, right on into the captivity where the king is, so to speak, Nebuchadnezzar. So we got Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, oh, and there's a typo. Zedekiah is the last king there. Sorry about that. Zedekiah. The deportations, just so you remember, the deportation started in 605. So the first deportation took place during Jehoiakim's reign. And this was the fulfillment of the prophecies. And really, this was all showing that God is in charge. They come in, they subjugate Judah. They put Jehoiachin basically under the thumb of Babylon. He has to now has to pay taxes to Babylon. 605 is when Daniel, Mishael, Hazariah, and Hananiah went off to Babylon as slaves. The second deportation during Jehoiachin, and then the last deportation was under Zedekiah. That's the typo, right? I've told you that. 
the last king is not another guy named Jehoiachin. It's Zedekiah. Second deportation, by the way, was because Jehoiachin tried to be a hero and stop paying taxes. Same thing happened with Zedekiah. Zedekiah is when the temple was burned, was destroyed, city was ransacked. All right, bad times. When Jeremiah starts his ministry, Assyria is on the decline. It had allied with Egypt, tried to save its skin. Babylon had some alliances with the Medes and the Persians and the Scythians. And they tried to defeat Assyria. And they did defeat Assyria. So we get that transition of power from the Assyrians to the Babylonians during Jeremiah's time. Jeremiah speaks to that. Actually gets hauled away to Egypt at one point. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river of Euphrates at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. If you just look up the battle of Carchemish, and if you studied any ancient history, that huge turning point for the ancient powers, the battle of Carchemish, the defeat there, and really the rise to power of Babylon. In the same year, actually, they came through and took Daniel, same year, 605 B.C., So, turbulent time in the ancient world. The prophet, well, there's lots of Jeremiah's in the Bible. I think this is of interest to people sometimes just to know. You run across the word Jeremiah in the Bible. You got to know where you're at in the timeline and try and figure out if we're talking about the one that you're thinking of. Ten Jeremiah's. The Jeremiah we're talking about, this may confuse you, but he's a priest. Take a look at it. He's from a priestly family. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Ananoth in the land of Benjamin. Benjamin's just north of Jerusalem. And Ananoth is a priestly town. And Jeremiah is then from the tribe of what? What tribe is he from? Levi, because he's a priest. Now, he's really anxious to be a prophet. No. Like a lot of good preachers and prophets, he's reluctant. He doesn't want to do it. And at some point, you're going to have to accept your calling. But he was not chomping at the bit to be a prophet. And you remember why in Jeremiah chapter 1, though he states it as his age, I think a big part of it is the difficulty of the work when the world is falling apart in your, in your nation. And remember, God says this, listen, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I mean, you weren't even born yet. I knew what you were going to do. And I decided what you were going to do. And I commissioned you as to what I wanted you to do. And then I said, oh, Lord, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a kid. I'm just a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Just do it. And here you see a reluctant young prophet who's going to have a long ministry compelled to do this because God was pushing him to do it, saying, don't worry about it. I'm going to tell you what to do. And then he goes on to tell him it's going to be terrible <laughs> in terms of they're not going to listen to you. It's going to be hard. We saw a lot of that in the Bible when God, whether it's Moses with Pharaoh or Isaiah with his earlier day or Jeremiah here. The prophet, let's talk about the prophet. He's called the weeping prophet. You've heard that. There are 15 references in Jeremiah to weeping. In Jeremiah chapter 9, he speaks of his own weeping. Oh, that my heads were waters. I wish I were like a spigot, you know, coming out of a, a, a well. My eyes fountain, a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He is called the weeping prophet because there's so much to weep about and also because he wrote the book of Lamentations. Don't forget. And a lament is a, something you sing, a dirge at a funeral. And so these are sad times and he's definitely in bad shape and he's much maligned if you've read the book and you should read it every year with us and get reminded of how much he went through, getting thrown in a, a well, being called off to prison, being kidnapped and taking, taken to Egypt. I mean, he was pushed around and if he could go back when he was a teenager hearing God call him to be a, a prophet, and could see where this was headed, I'm sure it would have added to his objection. Maybe he would have been as stubborn as the 80-year-old Moses. The message. Well, again, we're further than Zephaniah, so captivity is certain. There's no doubt about that. 
A big part of what God is doing through Jeremiah, though, is telling the people, you've got a couple different, quote-unquote, churches you can go to here, and you need to be careful. And here's how he puts it, or I put it. I'm going to tell you how he put it in chapter 6 in a minute. But the way I put it is, don't listen to the Pollyanna prophets. Now, there's going to be hope, and there always is hope about God's loving kindness, but it's always on the other side of our repentance. Be an honest person about the sin in your nation, in your family, and in your life, and God can restore you. But there's a lot of people saying, everything's fine. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. These are familiar lines from Jeremiah, I'm sure, saying these false prophets have healed the wound of my people lightly. Now, they've gone out and fixed. We're in trouble. We're distressed. We see things mounting on the borders of Israel. We're afraid we're going to get ransacked by the Babylonians. They're saying, peace, peace. It's going to be fine. But Jeremiah is saying, there is no peace. Don't listen to them. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15 says, the prophets just, let's just make it clear. They're prophesying lies. Oh, they're putting my name on it, but it's not true. I didn't send them, nor did I command them to speak, nor did I command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I didn't send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. Well, then by famine, those prophets shall be consorted in famine, those prophets shall be consumed. They were saying everything's fine. And you know what? I'll bet their quote unquote churches were more filled than, than Jeremiah and Baruch and his team and his disciples. People love to hear happy news. I use that Pollyanna line because that'd be a good movie to watch just to show how the world thinks about biblical preaching. We want to find those happy texts, as Pollyanna says, and camp on those. But we need the whole counsel of God, and Jeremiah was bringing it to them at the right time, trying to point out that you can't listen to everybody who speaks in the name of the Lord. And one of the reasons in the message was you've got to see how the leaders are preaching, look behind their preaching at how they're or why they're preaching that way. They're preaching because they're greedy. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8 and 8 through 10 says, how can you say we are wise, we have the law of the Lord with us? Well, you're saying we're on the right side, we got God's word, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. You can go into any contemporary best-selling book list and start just reading those books and you can see, you can come away with a message that has nothing to do with the message of the Bible. Yeah, I may say, well, we got a Bible and we got Christian books, but the lying pen of the scribes that are trying to comment on it all, they're turning it into a lie. They're twisting it. They're contorting it. They've rejected the word of the Lord because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. So you've got to look. That's why leaders are supposed to be people that can't be bought. They can't be the kinds of people that say, you know what, I just want this result. And if I just change the message, if I just water down the truth, maybe I can have all that. Because you can. I mean, you can. I mean, I definitely turn things around financially if I change my message. The point of your evangelism or your teaching is to represent the truth faithfully. The greedy leaders. It's all over the book. Chapter 5. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their own direction. And God isn't just blaming the prophets, although I've said that about the leaders. My people love to have it so. They love it that way. They love it. They love the prosperity stuff. But what will you do when the end comes? You will have been hanging on to a lie. So basically, Jeremiah says, look, the cast is set. You are going into captivity. There's no hope 
of your nation surviving this. There's an exile that's coming for 70 years. So what am I supposed to do? Well, you're going to be hauled off, be a godly prisoner, which is exactly what Daniel ends up doing. Jeremiah puts it this way. To all the exiles to whom I've sent into exile, Jeremiah 29, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I tell you to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, there you'll find your welfare. And in a sense, that's where we are right now as Christians in this age. This is not our home. I understand that. But you know what? We're going to do the best we can to do what we can to live, as as Paul said, peaceable and quiet lives. We like the communities we live in, the cities we live in, even the country we live in to do well. It's not my passion or the end all. I'm not an activist. But the idea is I'm someone who recognizes that when we as exiles have our society do well, then we can get about our work of being devoted to the Lord. There's a new covenant coming. Jeremiah 31 Days are coming, declares the Lord. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their heart. They're not listening to the law. They're contorting the law. They're listening to stuff that they know is not right. But I'm going to put the law in their heart. I'm going to write it on their hearts. Put the law within them. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Really got to know this God. You don't know him. They're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hope upon hope in this story saying one day the ultimate fulfillment of God, bringing his spirit within the people, which is just phase one of it, phase two, when he redeems their body, as Romans 8 says, he ushers in the kingdom. When the son of David comes back, the government rests on his shoulders. We're gonna have everything we need. Habakkuk will have to wait because we're out of time. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time together as we flew through those five prophets. I just do pray that next week we can have time to finish up this last prophet of the South and tackle our uh, exilic and post-exilic prophets together. Thanks for this crew working with me through these, in some ways, challenging books that remind us that we've got to think soberly about our, our society, about our hearts, about our families, about our church. We've got to be serious about sin. We've got to be willing to love one another enough to point out what's wrong and call out to one another to rend our hearts, not our garments as it's put. We can be right before you. We want to be tight with you, not tight with the world. We want to be set apart for you. We don't want to fit in here. We'd like to be your people and represent you well and live for you because we know one day you're going to return. All that'll matter is how we lived here for you. So encourage us, fuel our hearts in that quest, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.